0: I ran across something this week that I thought was quite, quite pertinent, thought I'd start with it today. It's now that I'm older, I've discovered. Now that I'm older, I've discovered I started out with nothing and I still have most of it. <laughs> my wild oats have turned into prunes and all bran. I finally got my head together, now my body's falling apart. It's easier to get older than it is to get wiser. That's true, isn't it? Some days you're the dog. Some days you're the hydrant. (laughs) It's hard to make a comeback when you haven't been anywhere. Now that I'm older, I've discovered that if God wanted me to touch my toes, He would have put them on my knees. (laughs) When I'm finally holding all the cards, why does everyone decide to play chess? It's not hard to meet expenses because they're everywhere. And the last one, these days I spend a lot of time thinking about the hereafter. I go somewhere to get something and then wonder what I'm hereafter. Right? You know what the theme of Jesus' very last sermon was before he went to the cross? It's about the hereafter. Be ready. Be ready and be on the alert for you do not know the day in which your Lord is coming. He didn't say anything about when the day of the Lord would be, but we know some things about that. If you read your Bible, we know that every eye will see Him. Every tongue will confess and openly proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow to Him. Is that right? One writer described the event with profound intimacy. He said this, quote, Every person who has ever lived will be present on that final gathering. Every heart that has ever beat. Every mouth that has ever spoken. On that day, you will be surrounded by a sea of people, rich, poor, famous, Unknown, kings, bums, brilliant, demented. All will be present and all will be looking in one direction. All will be looking at him. You won't look at anyone else. No side glances to see what others are wearing. No whispers about new jewelry or comments about who is present and who is not present. At this, the greatest gathering in history, you will have eyes for only one the Son of Man. My friends, in a time when people live in abject uncertainty, that day is a day of absolute certainty. But how many of us would consider ourselves ready right now? I've asked that question before. How many of you want to go to heaven when you die? Raise your hand. How many want to go right now? Some people are confident. They know. How many of us would consider ourselves ready in this moment? Are you aware that at least 1 20th of your New Testament speaks about Jesus' return? Did you know that there are over 300 references to the second coming of Christ? 23 out of 27 books of the New Testament talk about it. And by the way, they speak about it with as much confidence as as you and I have, that today is Sunday. For this reason, Jesus said, you be ready too, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think that He will. And do you know what will happen to those who are on the earth upon His return? According to Matthew chapter 25, this is what happens. And all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from one another. As the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats... And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now that word in that context, separate, is a very, very sad word. If I were going to put emotion on it, I would say it's extremely sad, a sad word. Colored by finality. It means to sever from the rest and cut off from all interaction. It carries this idea of separating things that would normally be together. Such as a mother and a daughter. A father from a son a husband, from a wife. Now when that kind of separation happens here on earth, it is painfully sorrowful. But the thought of it being done for an eternity is horrible beyond imagination, wouldn't you say? Jesus continues, then the king will say, To those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my Father, enter and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels and these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Now I had the opportunity the last couple of weeks to witness to a few people and somebody that I was talking to this week of course the subject came up they were very much afraid about dying and going to hell. And I said you know what? Hell was never prepared for you. And this context proves it. It says here That hell has been prepared for who? The devil and his angels. Not for people. People choose to go there. God doesn't want to send anyone there. No one likes the thought of that kind of judgment. Neither does Jesus. That's why he always issues a word of warning. His return will be certain. It will be sudden, it will be unexpected, it will be final, and it will be irreversible. No do-overs. So shouldn't we be ready? Shouldn't we be ready? How ready are you for the Lord's return? Now, looking around the landscape of our current times, we might get the impression that his return is, is just a fantasy. It's not real. It's a figment of someone's hopeful imagination. Yet somewhere deep down inside, we know the truth. And it scares us to death, a lot of us. Do you fear his return? Are you secretly hoping it won't be soon? Soon? Be honest. Is that fear the result of your unpreparedness? And maybe if you don't fear it, it could be two things. Maybe you're confident in your walk with Christ right now, or maybe, or just maybe, you're a little overconfident. If you're nervous, maybe your nervousness is trying to tell you something that you've known for a long time. Maybe you and I know that there's a lot of things in our lives that need to change in order to be ready before he comes. Maybe we need to be reminded of the fact that the certainty of his return emphasizes the need for true repentance. Sounds very much like the people of Malachi's day. Turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3 and we're going to embark in a new chapter. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Follow along as I read. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap, or a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years." then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. If you haven't already seen it, Since we've been in this book of Malachi, Malachi's world was astoundingly similar to ours. People were holding to a form of godliness, but denying its power. Others had become brazen, shaking their fists at God and challenging His character. They had given up on the prophecies concerning the Lord's deliverance. They had slipped into this cynical attitude at trying to maintain their moral and religious distinctiveness among the rest of the world was absolutely useless to them. They had actually come to the place, as we saw last week, of believing that God had changed His mind about things that he had relaxed his standards of holiness concerning the way they were supposed to live and practice their faith. In fact, because no judgment seemed to be imminent or forthcoming, they had convinced themselves that God really wasn't all that upset about sin. Their thought process kind of went like this. If God isn't going to act justly on our behalf and judge sin and judge evil, then you know what? we're going to relax our standards as well. And relax them they did. To the point where they challenged God and accused Him of favoring those who did evil. Their attitude in verse 17, as we looked at last week, has this contemporary ring to it. In short, this is what they were saying. They were saying, If there is a God of justice, either he's asleep or he just doesn't care. Where is the God of justice, it says in verse 17? Where is he? But you know what? He does care. Remember last week we talked about the prophet Habakkuk who said, as he dealt with the same question, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. He does care. He's not asleep and he's not late about his promises. Eugene Peterson in his rendition of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says it like this. He is restraining himself on account of you. Holding back the end because he doesn't want anyone lost. He's giving everyone space and time to change. Listen to those last eight words again. Eight Significant words that everyone in this room, including myself, needs to wrap our heads around this morning. He's giving everyone space and time to change. But you know what? That space and time is going to run out someday. And none of us knows when that is people of Malachi's day assumed that they had all the time and all the space in the world. They were wrong. Three greatest lies of Satan. You know what they are? There is no heaven, there is no hell, and there is no hurry. Satan tries to convince us of those three things. If you are of the opinion that you are not ready to live for Christ yet that you've got all kinds of time to get your life together and act together before he returns, you might want to read a few more scriptures and rethink that. God says in no uncertain terms, I'm coming, whether you're ready or not. Ready or not, here I come. And this ought to be the real message of postmodern Christianity. This is the real sequel to the Easter story. N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar and dean of Litchfield Cathedral in Staffordshire, England, writes this. Let me read it to you. For many, Christianity is just a beautiful dream. It's a world in which everyday reality goes a bit blurred. It's a nostalgic, cozy, and comforting world. But he says, real Christianity is not like this. Not like that at all. It's not a reminder that the world is really quite a nice old place. It reminds us that the world is a shockingly bad old place. Where wickedness flourishes unchecked. Where children are murdered. Where civilized countries make a lot of money by selling weapons to uncivilized ones. So they can blow each other apart. Christianity is God lighting a candle... And you don't light a candle in a room that's already full of light. You light a candle in a room that's so murky that the candle, when lit, reveals just how bad things really are. I think N.T. Wright is onto something, don't you? But you know what postmodern Christianity teaches a lot of time? Is that this world is the world that we want to make so much better. Well, yeah, we want to make it as, better, as best as we can. But Jesus said, there's another one. There's another one coming. This is not all there is. Listen to what the Apostle John wrote in his Gospel. John chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. And he came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to testify about the light. This message today, if you haven't guessed already, is about preparation. Preparing ourselves for the coming of Christ. It's the message John the Baptist was born to preach, and we are born again to proclaim. You know what John's message was? What did John come preaching? Somebody tell me. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What did Jesus preach right on the heels of John's? Repent, Repent, for the kingdom of God is in your midst. Don't you think we ought to be preaching the same message? Do we? Look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi prophesies he's going to prepare a way, a pathway. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. In response to the mocking question of chapter 2, verse 17, where is the God of justice? The prophet says, you know what? He's coming, but you're not going to like it. And that raises a concrete truth, which must be understood by everyone in contemporary society. In the end, no one, not a single person who has ever been conceived will be able to avoid a confrontation with God everyone is going to have an opportunity to stand before God. In these verses, we have the Old Testament prophecies of Christ's first and second coming all rolled into one package. There seems to be no distinct separation between the two of those things. And that is characteristic of many Old Testament prophecies concerning Christ's appearance as the Messiah. The theological thrust is that had Christ been accepted by the nation of Israel as their Messiah the first time that he came, there would have been no need for him to return a second time. Yet we know through hindsight that that was not the case, was it? One day, though, the nation of Israel will recognize Jesus as their Messiah. Listen to what the prophet Zechariah says in chapter 12, verse 10. He says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves For a firstborn son. It's gonna happen. But the people didn't weep or mourn when he came the first time, did they? You know why? Because they were not prepared. They thought they were ready, but they were not ready. They had not taken the words of Malachi, nor those of the other prophets who went before him seriously, that God was preparing a pathway for his arrival, and it was being paved by the messenger of a new hope. That's what verse 1, the first part of the verse, is saying, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he'll clear the way before me. It wasn't that people couldn't understand what Malachi's terminology was, He was speaking words that were very relevant to their culture. Let me give you some background. It was the custom of eastern kings to send men before them to remove every barrier and every obstacle in the road and in the path in order that they could arrive smoothly. These messengers would inform the inhabitants of certain places that the arrival of the king was imminent and summon that population to prepare the way by filling up the ruts in the road and removing all the boulders from the road. Listen to what Isaiah said in Isaiah 62, verses 10 and 11. He says, Go out, prepare the highway for my people to return, smooth out the road, pull out the boulders, raise a flag for all the nations to see. The Lord has sent this message to every land. Tell the people of Israel, look, your Savior is coming. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. This was common understanding in that culture that that's the way kings arrived. Years ago, my family and I took a trip to Texas to visit some friends of ours that were uh, in missionary school in Texas. My kids were real small then, so there were four of us, plus my wife and I jammed into a van driving cross-country. And on our way back, we were visiting, from visiting those people in Texas, we had been on the road for hours and hours and hours, a long time. And the traffic was pretty bad in the major cities. Well, we were, and it was getting very frustrating, because you know how it is when you want to get home, want to get home. It's like the mission team, they were stuck in Houston, Texas this last week, couldn't catch their flight, they wanted to get home. So, here we are driving through Nashville, Tennessee, and I turn on the radio just in time to hear the announcement that then Vice President Al Gore was arriving in town for some political event and that the Tennessee State Police would be stopping all transportation on the interstate that we were on. The very highway that we were traveling in order to clear the way for his arrival. By God's grace, we made it through that designated area within minutes before they shut it down. Now, here's the deal. I did not care one iota about stopping my progress in order for Vice President Gore to arrive in Nashville. It was the last thing on my agenda. I got a two-year-old kid in the back seat, sick and tired of sitting in his car seat. Actually, he was older than two, but he was still sick and tired of sitting in his car seat. It wasn't that important to me that he was arriving. I had my own plans. However, because of that announcement on the radio, I had time to make the necessary adjustments to my plan. Had I not been prepared by that announcement, guess what? I would have lost a whole lot of time on the journey home, wouldn't I? Here's the point. Unfortunately, that's exactly what happened to the Jews when the king's messenger arrived to clear the path for his coming. They were not prepared. They hadn't made the necessary adjustments to their spiritual progress and consequently, they got got held up on their journey home. In fact, spiritually speaking, they're still stuck in traffic. They are. Who is this messenger of the new hope to which Malachi is referring here in verse 1? Malachi doesn't say who it is. So they didn't know. But we can identify him pretty easily because the New Testament does. But listen to Isaiah chapter 40 for a moment. In verse... Starting in verse 3, A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, although this prophecy describes the promised return of the Jews from the Babylonian captivity, ultimately, it's pointing to the ministry of another prophet preparing the way for Christ's ministry on earth. His offer of eternal salvation. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3 for a moment. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. They should have known. Isn't it nice that you and I know We can read this Bible and we can look back and say, hey, that's John the Baptist. Chapter 11, Matthew's Gospel, verse 7. As the men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John, meaning John the Baptist. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who was more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, And violent men take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And if that were not enough, the angel Gabriel clarified the fact to Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, in the announcement of John the Baptist's birth. In Luke chapter 1, we read these words. Many of the people of Israel will he, meaning John the Baptist, bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Had the people recognized that John the Baptist was the messenger of hope, they would have understood that Jesus was their Messiah, but they were unprepared. Unprepared. All the prophets, including Malachi, had come to prepare the way. But like many of the people of Malachi's day, like the majority of people in John the Baptist's day, and like the masses of people today, a deaf ear gets turned to the warnings of the messenger. People refuse to make the adjustments to their lives or room in their hearts for Jesus. They refuse. Throughout this book of Malachi, as you've seen already and you'll see continue, as we continue on... Malachi calls people to change their direction, turn around, turn away from sin, turn toward the Lord, God. That's called repentance. John cleared the way by preaching this thing called repentance, and you know he got very specific when he preached it. He even named names. He told Herod, you better turn around. You better stop living the way you're living. You're married to a woman who is not your wife. In fact, she is your niece. This is incest. This is not the way that marriage is supposed to be. You better straighten this out. He named the name. And he called the sin. And you know where it got him? Head cut off. You willing to go out and do that? That's what Jesus calls us to. Preach repentance. Name the names. Call sin, sin. Offer grace. Offer mercy. Prepare the way of the Lord. Give him Jesus. People didn't want to believe that back then. They don't want to believe it today. But believe it or not, whether people back then believed it or not, guess what? Jesus came, didn't he? He came. He came on the scene, he offered grace and mercy to all who would clamor for it, who all would receive him. He satisfied the justice that people of Malachi's day were clamoring for in verse 17 through his death on the cross. And he, Jesus, is what Malachi refers to in verse 1 as the messenger of the covenant. Look at verse 1 again in Malachi chapter 3. The second part of the verse now. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of the hosts. Who's the second messenger here? The first messenger was John. Who's the second one? Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. There is a distinct difference between the first and second messenger in this text. This second messenger is none other than the angel of the Lord of Old Testament history, the pre-incarnate Christ. He is the Messiah, Jesus. And don't miss the clear references to his deity here. He is the one for whom the way is prepared by the first messenger. He is called the Lord and it is his temple that he is coming into. And the implication is that the people will not Be ready for him. Jesus did exactly what Malachi said here. As the messenger of the covenant, he fulfilled all the demands of the old covenant in his life. In addition, he suffered the penalties of our sin in his death on the cross and satisfied God's justice. Through his resurrection, he also ushered in a new covenant of grace. He is the messenger of the covenant. Next week, we're going to celebrate communion. Whenever we celebrate communion, I quote from the Gospels, usually Luke 22, Jesus on the night he was betrayed, took bread, broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take this and eat it. This is my body, which is given for you. And he took the cup and he gave it to them, said, this is the covenant, the new covenant in my blood. He's the messenger of the new covenant. But people, when Jesus came the first time, were not looking for grace and mercy, were they? They wanted justice, like they said in verse 17. Sure, they wanted mercy for themselves, but they wanted justice for everybody else. Jesus didn't come into the world that time for judgment like they wanted It says in John chapter 3, verses 18 to 21, he came for salvation. His second coming, however, will be for judgment for all those who do not receive him now. And listen to what's going to happen when he comes again. Close your eyes for a moment. Listen to these words out of 2 Thessalonians 1. And God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted and also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. It'd be great if it stopped there. Now listen. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who do not know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power when he comes to receive glory and praise from his holy people. And you will be among those praising him on that day. Or you believed what we testified about him. These will be punished with everlasting destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power when he comes to receive glory. Is that what people really wanted when they clamored for God's justice, do you think? In Malachi, do you think that's what they were thinking? Maybe for the other people. Well, let me ask you, who long for the day of the Lord's coming, is that what you want to see happen? A little earlier I asked, how many of you are ready for the Lord to return right now? Some people shook their heads yes. Some people raised their hand. I'm not ready. You know why? Because there's still a whole lot of people that I want to see saved. And if God comes back right now, if Jesus comes back right now, they're not going to be saved. We shouldn't be clamoring to get out of here. We should be praying for more and more opportunities to share Jesus with people before he comes back. That's the heart of Christ who desires no one to perish but for all to come to repentance, Right? to desire to get ourselves out of here is selfish. We want to be free from the pain and the turmoil and the trials and all the junk that we're suffering just like the people in Malachi's day, right? There's a better day coming and we know it's coming if we're in Christ. We can do it as long as he keeps us here with his help. See, in the wake of the people's taunting question of verse 17 of chapter 2, Malachi says, you know what? The Lord whom you seek, the God of justice and the messenger of the covenant that you appeal to and delight in, he will suddenly come into his temple. But is that what you really want? Is that what you really want? Look at verse 2. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. Who can endure it? Who will be able to stand and sustain his judgment when he comes? The implied answer is no one can. Only those who are in a right relationship to the Lord can endure and Jesus Christ is the only way to that relationship. Without him, no one can withstand the judgment of God upon sin. Israel thought the day of the Lord would be a day of great blessing for the people of God. That was Israel's greatest mistake, and ours as well. The day of the Lord ultimately does result in a day of great blessing for the people of God, but not before an intense process of purification takes place. Listen to the response of the prophet Amos to a people who had the same misconceived idea. Amos chapter 5 Verses 18 to 20, it'll be on the screen. How terrible it will be for you who say, if only the day of the Lord were here. For then the Lord will rescue us from all our enemies. But you have no idea what you are wishing for. That day will not bring light and prosperity, but darkness and disaster. In that day, you will be like a man who runs from a lion only to meet a bear. After escaping the bear, he leans his hand against the wall in his house and is bitten by a snake. Yes, the day of the Lord will be a dark and hopeless day without a ray of joy or hope. Folks, I'm afraid that sometimes Christians have the same misunderstanding as those people did. I've heard Christians talk about God's judgment as if it was going to be this long-awaited blessed event. That finally sinners will be dealt with. What about us? What about our own sin? I once read a convicting definition of a hypocrite. It goes like this. A hypocrite is a person who complains about all the sex and violence he sees on his DVD player. Should we really be longing for the day of the Lord? Am I ready for it? Are you ready today? Here's a question for you. You can write it down. Meditate on it this week. Is your spiritual life so perfected that you would not shrink away in shame if Christ were to come right now? Is it that perfected? Francis Chan, author of Crazy Love, which I have talked about in the last few weeks. It's still out there if you want a copy of it at the information desk. He writes this, he says, In the parable of the sower, Jesus explains that the seed is the truth, the word of God, and when the seed is flung onto the path, it is heard but quickly stolen away. When the seed is tossed onto the rocks, no roots take hold. There is an appearance of depth and growth because of the good soil, but it's only surface level. When the seed is spread among the thorns, it is received but soon suffocated by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. But when the seed is sown in good soil, it grows, takes root, and produces fruit. And this, then he says this. He says, my caution to you is this. Do not assume that you are good soil. Then he asks, has your relationship with God actually changed the way you live? Do you see evidence of God's kingdom in your life? Or are you choking it out slowly by spending too much time, energy, money, and thought on the things of this world? I will say it again, he says. Do not assume that you are good soil. Because that's what these people did. They were assuming. And judging from the fact that there is no discernible difference in our culture... Between the lifestyles of professing Christians and those of non-believers, there is a serious lack of understanding of the biblical concepts of holiness, repentance, sorrow, confession, and consecration. Isn't there? I've known people who honestly believe that because they have proverbially, proverbially, I can't even say the word, proverbially accepted Christ that no matter what kind of off-color sinful behavior they engage in, it will be overlooked at Christ's return. He'll just wink, kind of, and he'll say, Oh, you're okay. I died for you, remember? Now, here's what is theologically true and biblically accurate and biblically certain. Christians, Will be tried by fire. We will be tried by fire, not as to salvation, but as to purity. And if you want to read about that, read first Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. So, how prepared are we to be in his presence? Are you holy enough? Am I holy enough to stand before him right now and not be burned by his refining fire? You see, the error of Malachi's audience was presumption. And it could equally be ours. They thought that because their place was secured as the people of God, they could let their lifestyle slip. God certainly wouldn't judge them. Don't assume that you are good soil. The fact is that no one is able, apart from Christ's help, to endure or sustain the refining process. You need to make sure that you're good soil. Through a relationship of faith with Jesus Christ, the Lord. Because he will purify his people. And judgment, Peter says, and Malachi says it too, begins in the house of God. Look at verse 3. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. God's relationship to people, them or us, was not automatic or mechanical. If people think that God approves of evil, his coming is going to prove the exact opposite. For it says he'll be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He's going to remove every impurity. And as it says here, it begins with the sons of Levi, the house of God. Malachi doesn't make any mention of other nations, the Gentiles, or anything. This day of God's judgment that he's talking about is for purification of Israel. Especially the spiritual leaders and teachers. We need to recognize that God's at work purifying his people. Even now. You're going through some fiery times. Trials. Afflictions. Afflictions difficulties, maybe some persecution, in order to bring about that purification process, God uses those things to purify us. This picture of Malachi's that he talks about, the refiner's fire, is of, is of a, a refiner who sits and focuses his entire attention on the metal in the crucible, which is being purified and heated intensely. And the refiner knows that the process of purification is complete. And the impurities are all burned away when all he can see in the molten metal is a clear reflection of his own image as if he were looking in a mirror. That's the smelting process. What a beautiful picture of what Jesus does, isn't it? That's what Christ is in the process of doing with us and what he's going to do in the future with the nation of Israel. God's intensely concerned about the holiness of his people. And he begins the purifying process at his sanctuary. He's going to burn away the impurities until he is left with a people who are conformed completely to his own image. So maybe you're going through some hard times right now. Spiritual, physical, emotional upheaval. Hurts, burns like a fire. You don't understand what's happening to you. God may be using these times to turn you into a son or a daughter that more closely resembles Him. And these things that you're going through can do one of two things it can make you bitter or it can make you better you will either resent him for it or resemble him by it. God, Scripture says, will purify his people. And those who truly belong to God will come through the fire. But those who don't, those who don't belong to God, well, let's just say you don't want to be a part of that group. Because he's going to purge away all evil. It says in verse 5 that he's going to be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, and against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and don't fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Because he doesn't change his attitude against sin. And every one of these listed sins here in this verse 5 shows that the times haven't changed much, have they? They're still the same sins that we see today. And the bottom line is the common denominator of all the people here involved in these things is that they do not fear God. They don't fear God. Life Magazine once interviewed dozens of people to learn how Americans feel about prayer. One person they talked to was a prostitute, aged 24 years old, in Nevada. She says, quote, a lot of people think working girls don't have any morals, any religion, but I do. I don't steal, I don't lie. The way I look at it, I'm not sinning. He's not going to judge me. I don't think God judges anybody, unquote. Few notions more comforting than the idea that God doesn't judge anybody. The problem is that soothing idea is absolutely false. Russell Kirk said that he who admits no fear of God is really a post-Christian man, for at the heart of Judaism and Christianity lies a holy dread. This holy dread, I think, is a, something that, that we've lost in this post-modern age Years ago in the Puritan age, they had that. And they said they feared God. It wasn't just like holy reverence. It was also shaking in your shoes. But the Bible says to fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom causes us to realize that it is by God's grace alone that we're not consumed on the spot. And that's what it says in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Thank God he is a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness and long suffering. But don't make the mistake of viewing God's grace from the wrong angle. Don't think that he, like us, closes his eyes to sin, tolerating it. He doesn't. Far from it. God will never say, sorry, change my mind. That's no longer sin. I was just kidding. He's never going to say that. Because that would absolutely annihilate all that was accomplished on the cross by Jesus Christ, wouldn't it? He's not like us. He doesn't change. That's what the Jews of Malachi's day had forgotten in their zeal for God's judgment to come upon sin resident in the world, they forgot and ignored the fact that it was still resident in them. And we dare not forget it either. In our longing for Jesus to return to judge sin, let us remember that it still manages to touch our lives as well. But there is a way to stay clean. And here it is. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen, Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the grace and the power of the gospel that cleanses us from all sin. But thank you also for the warnings of Scripture that we dare not take it lightly because it cost your Son precious blood. We were not bought back from the slave market of sin with gold or silver or things like that. But to be redeemed, it cost Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, His own life and His own blood. And as we look ahead to the celebration of Easter in a couple of weeks, let us be thankful and stand in holy awe of what it cost for us to celebrate Easter with joy and song and worship. Because on the other side of the cross, we know there is a resurrection. Let us grab onto to that faith, fact as we walk in this world. And let us preach that good news as well to those who need to hear it. For Jesus' sake I pray and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen.